Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from Matthew 26, two passages from Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, and then 47 through 75. That can be found on the Pew Bible, pages 832 and 833. Matthew 26, starting at verse 30. And when they, that's Jesus and the disciples, had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now we'll skip down to verse 47. And while he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, 
He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we know, each of us, that we have crumbled under far less pressure, more times than we can number. We know, as you know, that we are weaker than we are comfortable admitting. And so we are very grateful this morning to be reminded of the the strength of your Son, our Lord Jesus, that we can come to him as our refuge, his fidelity as our refuge, and not to rest in our own. And so we pray this morning, Father, that above everything else uh, from these Uh, verses, what would stand forth would be uh, the power of your son to restore and his rightful title as the restorer, that that would be embraced, that he would be embraced by those who already belong to him and, and by many today who, as your spirit ministers the word, would be given new life. He himself promised that truly Truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is already here when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so we pray that today might be the day when under your grace the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God and be made to live. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, what do you do when you find yourself suddenly standing in the debris field of your failures. What do you do when you find yourself winding your way through the wreckage of your own broken promises, both to God and to yourself? 
and you are faced with the now inescapable truth that you have believed in hope against hope, that you have believed and lived according to lies about yourself that you can now no longer deny. What do you do? Well, one option would be to keep trusting yourself. And that's not a good option. There's only one other option, which is to keep entrusting yourself to the one who will never lie to you and who will never fail you, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we think about the gospel according to Peter, and it is a gospel of shock and awe, because it is the gospel of the spectacular failure of the merit of men, and the the gospel of the spectacular restoration of failed men by the merit and mercy of Jesus Christ. It is the story of every Christian. It is the only story and the only biography of every Christian. Spectacular failure of the merit of men answered by the spectacular restoration through the merit and mercy of Jesus Christ. That is every Christian's biography. And so if you're a non-Christian who is visiting with us this morning, thank you for being here. Uh, this intersection in this passage of, of the plot lines of Peter's denials and Jesus's confession and Peter's restoration, this intersection that we're standing together at this morning really is, uh, is going to give us the gospel in microcosm. So if you're a non-Christian and you want to understand what Christianity isn't and what it is, this is a wonderful Sunday for God to have brought you here. And I have prayed that God would draw you to his son this morning. So we're going to look at three steps here. Um, Peter's denials, Jesus' confession, and then Peter's restoration. So let's look first at Peter's denials. And there are facts, the facts of Peter's denials, and then there's the logic of Peter's denials. So let's look at the facts of Peter's denials first. And notice that, that Jesus predicts Peter's denials, doesn't he? And he's very graphic about it. I mean, in verse 31, it would be hard to imagine a moment more pregnant with emotion and drama than verse 31. And the disciples have just celebrated uh, the Last Supper with Jesus, and now he looks them in the eye and says, you will all fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13, 7. Notice that Jesus' prediction in verse 31 includes Peter. You will all fall away. Judas is gone. Now it's just the 11 and Jesus is predicting that all 11 of them are going to fall away. And notice is very interesting Notice where Jesus places his emphasis in his prediction that they're all going to fall away. Not on their weakness, although that's a given. He says, you will all fall away. You notice this? Because of me. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 
seven. I mean, Jesus knows even if the eleven do not, that there is going to be a, a shock wave that, that comes out of his suffering, that, that the suffering that he is poised to undergo is going to be so shocking, it's going to be so powerful, it's going to undo all their best resolves, it's going to, it's going to shatter their illusions about the strength of their loyalty to him. He knows that even if they do not. But did you notice that in verse 32, he promises a reunion? But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's a sweet balancing promise, isn't it? Jesus doesn't single Peter out until Peter singles himself out. We're used to that, aren't we? Peter hears what Jesus says, and then in verse 33, speaks up, though they all, do you notice this? This is really important. Though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. Do you see what Jesus is, I mean, what Peter is doing? He is elevating himself above the other ten. He's, he is declaring his loyalty by way of a negative comparison with what he imagines the disloyalty of the other ten will be. But he's not only comparing himself favorably to his fellow brother disciples, he's also, my friends, calling Jesus wrong. You see that? He's elevating himself above Jesus. And more than that, he is even elevating himself above the Father who has made the promise of Zechariah 13.7. This is not a little slip up. His fellow disciples will be wrong. Jesus' prediction is going to be wrong. The Father's promise is going to be wrong. Who's the only one left standing after verse 33? Peter. But then Jesus gets more specific in verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But even that does not dissuade Peter. Did you notice that? Because now in verse 35, he says, well, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So Jesus is wrong again. And then we jump to the end of the passage. It's very dramatic, isn't it? Peter the leader. And then falls so dramatically. You jump to the end of the passage. And it's, it's wonderful how Matthew has depicted uh, these, these scenes on top of one another. In verse 58, right, where. Well, Jesus is led into the, the interior of the high priest's home, Caiaphas's home, which was probably like a mansion. And then in verse 58, he inserts this little uh, aside that lets us know that Peter is following at a distance. He wants to see the end, as Matthew says. And Peter stays out in the courtyard. And then, and then there's the scene of the trial in the interior of Caiaphas's home, which we'll look at under our second point this morning. But, but the passage ends with, with Peter's 
trial, as it were, out in the courtyard, and you notice that there are a series of intensifications. Peter, as Peter fulfills Jesus' predictions, there are a series of intensifications here. Peter's three denials match the three predictions, right? There was a prediction from Jesus in verse 31, right? You will all fall away uh, from me tonight, right? There's the prediction of the Father in Zechariah 13, 17, that when the shepherd is stricken, the sheep will be scattered. And then there's Jesus' specific uh, prediction about Peter's three denials in verse 34. And now those three predictions are answered, if you will. There's a counterpoint to them in the three denials. And they're there's just a series of escalations. First, the accusers. It starts out with a single servant girl who comes up to him in the courtyard, and she says, hey, you were with him, weren't you? Maybe she was with the group that that, uh, met him, uh, that came with Judas to capture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe. The second accuser, is a servant girl who talks uh, to Peter, uh, talks about Peter to the bystanders. Right, so now, now it's, it's expanding, it's intensifying. And the third uh, accusation comes from the group of bystanders or a group of bystanders. So the accusers intensify. Peter's denials intensify. At first, he says it's kind of an evasion. It's like, it sounds like, he sounds like a politician. I don't know what you mean. There's a problem with your question. But then the second accusation, uh, when the servant girl talks to the bystanders about him, he, he, he specifically, and with an oath, maybe because he's afraid of the crowd, he specifically denies that he knows Jesus. And then the third denial, right, is an acceleration and intensification because now he calls down a curse. He guarantees his denial with a curse on himself. And then notice also his locations. The situation, what, what I'm trying to depict is that, or what I'm trying to describe is what Matthew's depicting, which is that the denials are, uh, they're, they're increasing in their gravity and his physical location changes, right? He's moving further away. He's distancing himself physically from Jesus. So he starts out in the courtyard. Then he moves to the entrance for the second accusation because he's, he's trying to get away. And then he's, at the end, he's all the way outside. He's completely abandoned. Now, before we look at the logic of these denials, it's really important, I think, for us to think about three questions here. What does this say about us? That's the first question. What does this say about us? This was the rock, my friends. This was the rock. And if the rock crumbles so swiftly under pressure, shouldn't each of us be sobered? Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10? He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Would you have, if you were uh, on Vanuatu last night or yesterday, would you have stood outside when Cyclone Pam came overhead? Would you have done that? Of course you wouldn't. Why not? Because you know that 155 mile an hour winds are dangerous for you as a human being. 
Yet why would you stand in, why would you put yourself uh, in a place where you think you could stand against temptation? 155 mile an hour winds are nothing compared to temptation. Your track record is that the wind of temptation barely puffs on you and you keel over. Just like it is for me. So what does this say about us? Secondly, what does it say about the Bible? Oh, this is awesome. I love the Bible. I love how honest the Bible is. Matthew's gospel would have been written at a time when Peter was the leader, or at least one of the few major, most prominent leaders in the church. And do you see how in the New Testament... Right? The prominence of Peter's failure is not being tucked away. It's not being buried. It's not being, it's not placed on an email server somewhere in somebody's private residence. It's right out in front according to the will of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what that says about the reliability of the Bible? Why wouldn't you cover it up? Why wouldn't you bury it? There's one answer, because it happened. Because it's real. Because the New Testament is not on the fiction aisle of the universe. The New Testament is in the non-fiction aisle of the universe. If you were making this up, you wouldn't put that in there. That's just common sense. But it's glorious. What does it say about the gospel. That's the third pastoral question. Well, I'll tell you what it says about the gospel. The gospel is staggering. There's something about the gospel's promises and power that make it possible for somebody who has failed massively to not hide their massive failure. What do I mean? Well, it seems very likely to me that Peter is the source of this story. There is no other, if you look at the other four Gospels, there is no other trace, or the other three Gospels, sorry, there are not five Gospels, I apologize. If you look at the other three Gospels, there's no trace of another follower of Jesus who would be in the vicinity while this is happening. So that leads me to believe that Jesus, excuse me, that Peter is self-reporting. The way the church has learned about Peter's failures is through Peter's own confession. Oh, that's awesome. Do you see what that says? I mean, can you just catch a whiff? Can you catch an aroma of freedom? An aroma of shame being lifted? An aroma that is not threatened by failure because there is some answer out here, some massive truth about what Jesus Christ has done, about what Jesus Christ promises that frees a man up who was in a position of leadership to acknowledge failure at the most critical point. Oh, that's beautiful. We read our Bibles too quickly. And we're the poorer for it. So there's not just the facts of Peter's denials, there's also the logic of them. What is it that leads to Peter's denials? I think this is really important. Last week when we looked at Judas, we, looked, we did an autopsy on Judas's apostasy and we saw that the 
The, what scripture shows us is the ultimate causes of Judas's apostasy were his enchantment with sin and his disappointment with, with Jesus. There are different issues now that lead to Peter's failure, but there is a logic to Peter's failure that I think is very important. And, the, and there are two strands in the logic of Peter's denials. And the, the two strands are one, the fear of man, and secondly, spiritual pride. Fear of man and spiritual pride. Let's look first at the fear of man. That's in verses 69 through 75. I mean, that just jumps off the page at you, doesn't it? I mean, a servant girl. This is a big fisherman. Right? I mean, Peter was, was, Peter was the first one to confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God in chapter 16. In chapter 14, he's the only one of the 12 disciples who, in the midst of a storm, is willing to get out of the boat and trust Jesus to walk across water to him. He's the only one. And yet a servant girl just sort of whispers to him. And he completely caves. And once it starts rolling, the snowball accelerates, right, on the fuel of fear. And it, and it gets bigger and bigger through each successive denial. Peter imagined, we know this from verse 33 and verse 35, Peter had a vision of himself, right? He, he had a vision of himself that no matter what happened, right, his love for Jesus, he had outgrown the possibility of being disloyal to Jesus. He had a vision for himself. He imagined and believed that he would be courageous to the point of death even. Verse 35. That's what he believed in a vacuum. But the actual facts proved very different. This was the rock. And he was more fragile than he dared believe himself to believe. More fragile than he was willing to believe. I wonder if you believe the same thing is true about you. Well, I hope you do. It would be not just accurate but wise to believe that. It's very easy when you look at somebody else's life and the fears in their life to dismiss them, especially when those are not the fears that define you. So maybe it's not the fear of man in your life, but I guarantee you, you are a fearful person. There are fears. Everyone has their kryptonites, my friend. Everyone has their kryptonites. Anyone who thinks that they don't just hasn't lived long enough or needs to open the door to their bubble and enter the real world. We all have our kryptonites. We all have the things that will buckle our knees. We all have different life lies that will be dissolved like a morning mist in an instant when the right combination of factors shows up. And it is just godly wisdom to acknowledge that. You know, this temptation of the fear of man doesn't end with Pentecost in Peter's life. This is a besetting sin. I'm not going to go into it in great depth, but this is a besetting sin. Because you might be saying, well, yeah, but that's before uh, Pentecost when he you know, received the Holy Spirit. And then God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and discipline, which is true. But that doesn't keep Peter from being afraid of people. Read Galatians 2. Post-Pentecost, fear of man that Paul has to rebuke him for. So don't assume that these kind of things, these besetting sins, uh, discontinue 
even when you've been a Christian for a long time. If you think you stand, my friend, take heed lest you fall. But the deeper truth about Peter's, or the deeper logic of Peter's uh, denials is, is really found in his spiritual pride. And, and we see that as well in verse 33. That jumps off the page at us in verse 33, right? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then verse 35, right? Even if I have to die, I'm going to go with you. So he's simultaneously elevated himself above his brother disciples. There is no way that I'm going to be like those guys. And he's also, that's verse 33. And then he's also, you know what he said? He said, I'm going to be above the temptation. That's what verse 35 is. I'm not going to be afraid to die with you. Oh my goodness. This is not a new theme in Peter's life. It's so helpful to have the records that God has given us in the New Testament because we can see that this theme of spiritual pride is not a new, this isn't just some sudden, surprising, unexpected uh, outburst in Peter's life. This has been a theme in Peter's life from the very beginning. If you go turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verse 8, and so that would be page 861 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 5. Now, you know this scene. This is the scene when, uh, when after a night of, of fishing, right, where they didn't catch anything, the disciples are cleaning their nets, and Jesus comes along and says, hey, uh, let's go out into the water again and put your net down. And they catch a ton of fish. And then if you look at, if you look at verse 8, this is Peter's response to that huge catch that Jesus has provided. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Oh, that's very interesting. He's just received evidence of Jesus' power, miraculous power. And, And what happens is that event causes the logic of his heart to break through to the surface And this is the logic of Peter's heart. It's been revealed now. Listen to it. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, that's very interesting logic because what what it implies is that Peter is thinking, right, at some level, that Jesus' nearness to him is a function of his own goodness, Peter's goodness. But the fact that Peter is sinful means that Jesus should keep his distance. Of course, that is exactly the, <laughs> that's, the that's like, he couldn't be more off of the logic of Jesus' ministry, right? The whole point of Jesus' coming is because Peter's a sinful man. He spends his entire ministry rebutting the assumptions in Peter's logic. But you see, there's, there's a grain of pride there that thinks Right, that imagines that it would be possible for him to earn the nearness of Jesus by the quality of his own life. Now, you know, a lot of us think that way too. Because that's how every other religion teaches us to think. And that's, that's the counterfeit version of Christianity that so many of us deal with. 
right? That it is our good works that earn God's good favor. And that's not the gospel, my friends. That's just moralism. You don't need a cross for that. So this is at the beginning of Peter's life. His spiritual pride, it's there. But it's even at the end, if you go to John chapter 13. And that's on page 900 in your pew Bible. You know this, you know this scene, right? Jesus is, has wrapped himself with a towel, is washing the feet of his disciples, right? And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, there is no way that you are going to stoop down and wash my feet. And Jesus says, you remember what he says? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. See, Jesus is thinking, hey, my, excuse me, Peter is thinking, there is no way that my sin could be so bad and so serious that you would have to humble yourself before me and wash me. It's still there. After three years of ministry with Jesus, Do you see how deeply rooted it is? It is hard to uproot spiritual pride. And just as Judas's besetting sins grew while he was in the shadow of Jesus' wings, so did Peter's spiritual pride grow. And as I was thinking about this, I was just taken aback by how patient Jesus is with Peter's spiritual pride. And this was an issue from the very beginning. And Jesus takes his time with Peter's spiritual pride, not because it's not serious, but because there's only one way to deal with it. Jesus allowed it to grow for three years in the shadow of his wings and never dealt it a mortal blow. That that should puzzle you. And the reason he didn't, I think, is because he had a much better plan, which is that Jesus' plan was to let Peter's spiritual pride commit suicide. Just play it out. And isn't that really the case? The opposite of pride is humility, but it often takes humiliation for us to get weaned off our pride. We we have to suffer because of our pride in order to grow in humility. Otherwise, our self-willed humility ends up fueling our pride. I I have to be honest, this, this has been and continues to be my experience in the Christian life. And over the years, the Lord has led me repeatedly into situations, pressures, whatever you want to call them, that have, that have brought out my spiritual pride or my fear, or more frequently, both of them, <laughs> undeniably and inescapably brought them to the surface so that I'm forced to face them, and he has been very gracious to do so. Let me give you one example uh, from my life. Um, uh, after 45-plus years of air travel... About five years ago, uh, I developed very suddenly and unexpectedly a fear of flying. I never saw it coming. And it's, it's not rational. It's very strong. It's humbling to the point of being humiliating. 
And for five years, I have asked the Lord to take it away. And he hasn't. He hasn't. When we went to Somaliland last year, I had so many friends saying, aren't you nervous about being in Somaliland? I could care less what happens in Somaliland. It's the airplane ride. But it's a deep fear. It's not rational. Um, And God has not taken it away. And instead what he's done, and it's humbled me, right? Because I'm a pastor. It's humbled me. And what God has done is he's turned that fear into a doorway. And that doorway, he's ushered me through that doorway. For five years, he's brought me in through that doorway to see and to look upon and to face how many other fears I have besides that obvious one that shape and distort my life. He has been very gracious to do that. And he has done it not to rub my nose in my weakness, It's not how God deals with his children. But to humble me and to raise me up, like the Westminster Confession of Faith says, to raise me up to a more constant dependence upon him. At this point, I don't have any expectation that God is going to take that fear away. And I'm mostly okay with that. It has taught me, he has used it to look to him for my support more closely and to be much more watchful against all other fears and temptations to fear in my life. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12? You know, about his thorn. It's interesting. When Paul prays about his thorn, he says three times, right? I prayed, take it away. Here's here's Paul's definition of sufficiency. Thornlessness. That's my definition of sufficiency, Lord. Thornlessness. Jesus has a different definition of uh, of sufficiency, doesn't he? Jesus' definition of sufficiency is not thornlessness. It's actually thornfulness plus his grace. My grace, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, not thornlessness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And that's what's going to happen in Peter's life. That's what Jesus is going to do through Peter. That's what he does in our lives, friends. It's not his power is not perfected in our power but in our weakness so let's look now at Jesus's confession it's interesting that the counterpoint to Peter's denials is Jesus's confession there are really two trials that Matthew's recording here there's the one that that's happening out in the courtyard with Peter and it's the trial in which Peter fails And then there's another trial going on, much more serious, going on inside the high priest's house. And in that trial, Jesus prevails. Uh, Peter denies Jesus, but Jesus refuses to deny Jesus. So think about what's going on inside in verses 57 through 68. It's, It's really a kangaroo court, right? 
it's been hastily and cynically assembled in the middle of the night, violating the rules. And it's been assembled, right, that Sanhedrin has been summoned, and they've been summoned to render a predetermined verdict, and they've been seeking false testimony. They want to find two witnesses that agree, and it's a comedy of errors at at one level because they can't get the witness. Apparently there are a lot of witnesses who want to come forward and say bad things about Jesus. Sound familiar? But they don't agree. Then finally you get two guys who say, yeah, he said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not really good enough. And so it's interesting that what they need ultimately is given to them by Jesus himself. In verse 64, where he says something absolutely remarkable. Look at verse 64 with me. The high priest says, hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? He's, what he's asking him is, are you the Messiah, which they assume to be a human? Are you the Son of God? Are you the heir of David? That's what he's asking. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Notice, Jesus is not simply accepting the high priest's characterization of his identity. He's not disagreeing with it. It's, it's not wrong, it's just not sufficient. There's more to the truth. You have said so. But I tell you, and now he's addressing the entire Sanhedrin, I tell you, plural. From now on, you, plural, will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow, what did he just do? Well, he did two things. I mean, you know he did something very powerful because as soon as the high priest hears it, he tears his robe and says, blasphemy. So what is it that Jesus has said in that verse? Well, he's done two things. He's identified, he's, he's massively intensified his identity at least the disclosure of his identity. All You know, earlier in the Gospels, he was always trying to be indirect about his messianic identity. Well, now there's no need to conceal the full truth of his messianic identity at this point. So he pulls off all the restraints and he identifies himself. First, he, tell, he speaks about his identity and he says, here's who I am. I am the Lord of Psalm 110, verse 1, who is seated, who is enthroned next to Yahweh. That's who I am. I'm seated. I will be seated at the right hand of power. That's the first thing he says. And the second thing he says is, I'm the Son of Man. From Daniel 7. You're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man from Daniel 7 is the figure who receives from the Ancient of Days, who approaches the Ancient of Days seated on the throne and receives from the Ancient of Days an everlasting dominion and the worship of all the peoples on the earth. And Jesus has just said this about himself. Now, I just want you to feel how ridiculous that sounded. He's a captive. He looks weak. He hasn't even spoken up in his defense. He listened to hours of false testimony and never defended himself. 
And now he is saying, very soon you will see my cosmic throne. That's the first thing Jesus says. But he says something, there's, some, there's another strand in what he says in verse 64 that is even more shocking. It's not just his identity as a king. It's not just his royal identity. But the other thing that he's emphasizing is where his throne is or where it will be. He's talking about his cross, my friends. Do you see what he says? It's very interesting. He says, but I tell you, now he's addressing the entire Entire Sanhedrin, he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see. In other words, the Sanhedrin is going to see. The membership of the Sanhedrin who are sitting in judgment over him. He's saying to them, from this point forward, you're going to see my throne. You are going to see my throne. You're going to see my enthronement. You're going to see my coronation. You who sit in judgment on me are going to see my cosmic throne. This isn't talking about Jesus' second coming. If he, if he was talking about his second coming, he wouldn't have said from now on, and he would not have looked the Sanhedrin in the eye and said, you're going to see it. So the obvious question is, where are they going to see his enthronement? Where are they going to see his coronation? And the obvious answer, the only answer, is his cross. Jesus is saying, friends, this is so important. Right now, we are at the heart of Christianity. We are in the epicenter of Christianity. Because of what Jesus is saying in verse 64. To the naked eye, he looks weak. He looks like a prisoner. He looks like a captive. But to the eye of faith, what you have and what Jesus is declaring about himself is that he is the king of glory. And his glory, his coronation, his enthronement will be most clearly seen on his cross. That is the epicenter of Christianity. You know, yesterday I was reading Exodus 25 and, uh, and the Lord is giving Moses instructions about the tabernacle and it's very interesting where the Lord starts with all those instructions. He starts uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. He starts in the center of what will be the tabernacle system, right? He starts with his own throne. And he describes the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? There's a mercy seat, and above the mercy seat are two cherubim, right? And this is all gold, right? And the two cherubim have their wings covering the, the top, covering the, spreading across the length of the mercy seat, and their faces are uh, looking at the mercy seat. And God says that he will speak to Moses from between the cherubim. In other words, what God's saying is, my throne is going to be between the cherubim. Now, I want you to think about that symbolism. Where's God's throne? Above the mercy seat. What happens on the mercy seat? On the Day of Atonement, the blood is poured on the mercy seat. 
So what that symbolism is saying, friends, is exactly the same thing as the cross, that the place of God's enthronement is the place of our atonement. And it has always been the plan. At Calvary, the shadows give way to the substance. And the, and the promises give way to the fulfillment. The place of God. The place of Jesus' enthronement and the place of his people's atonement are one and the same. This has been the plan from before the foundation of the world, my friends. This is the heart of God laid bare. Jesus is holding fast to this truth in verse 64 because it has always been the plan of God that the place of our of his enthronement among men and the and and the atonement made for men would that these two things would meet and kiss in the same place. That's what the cross is. That's what God is doing. That's how Jesus sees the cross. He's making his coronation our propitiation. That's the kind of God he is. Do you see why the Bible would describe sin as suicide? Sin that rebels against a God willing to do that. The God of glory who is willing to set his throne up in a place where he has to make and wants to make atonement for sinners who are rebels against him? Why would you walk away from kindness like that? Why would you, why would you dismiss that? Can you see how offensive that would be? Can you see how proud and ungrateful that is? Can you see how suicidal that is? Oh, my friends, when you look at that cross, I pray that you will see it through Jesus' eyes, that here is a king. I've said it many times before as we've journeyed through Matthew. The cross is not where Jesus loses his crown. The cross is how he chooses to use his crown. He was working for his people with all of his omnipotent royal might as he is being slapped and as he is being mocked and as he is being kicked and scourged and then had, having spikes nailed through his hands, he is working with all of his royal might to bring about an exodus that would result in eternal freedom for his people. The Sanhedrin thought that they were sending Jesus to his death, but Jesus knew. They thought they were sending him to the cross to kill him, but he knew. That's why he doesn't summon angels to protect him. He knew that they were sending him to be crowned. That's why in John's gospel, uh, Jesus' crucifixion is is described as Jesus' glorification. Because it's where he's enthroned, where you see his enthronement visibly. Friends, the fact that that is the kind of king Jesus Christ is, that makes the restoration of anyone possible. You see, Jesus does not deny himself, and because he does not deny himself, and he's a king unlike any other king who's willing to suffer in the place of his people in order to make atonement for them, he is willing to undergo the deepest humiliation 
willing to be desolate of his father even, desolate of men and fellowship, to be, uh, to be deserted even by his own disciples. Friends, that work that a king would be willing to humble himself like that means that, that no one is beyond restoration. Because no one has gone lower than Jesus Christ or ever will or ever could. So this... It's Jesus not denying himself there when he's on trial that makes the restoration of Peter and every other Christian possible. So let's talk about Peter's restoration. Let's think about it together. I mean, Jesus' design is totally shocking. Totally shocking. Right? He's He's already promised in verse 32 in our text that there's going to be, even though they're all going to fall away, even though the sheep are going to be scattered, there's going to be a reunion, right? There's going to be a reunion in Galilee. And, and that will extend even to Peter. But in Luke's gospel, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 22, which is on page 882 in your pew Bible, go to Luke 22, uh, verses 31 through uh, 34. Jesus is much more specific about Peter. And he says something really remarkable. We've looked at this before, but I want, to, I want you to see it again because it adds a, a layer to Jesus' plan for Peter's restoration that's really important to see. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Do you see that? That's absolutely staggering. Because wouldn't you think that Peter's denials would be the failure of his faith? I mean, at first cut, that seems pretty obvious. But think about that again, because if Jesus is the one who is praying for Peter, and we know from James 5 that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, well, what does the prayer of the most righteous man avail? So we know that whatever else happens, Peter's faith is not going to fail. We know that Peter's denials, at least from Jesus' point of view, do not constitute the failure of his faith. Because look at what Jesus says. And when you have turned again. How's he going to turn again? See, this is what Judas doesn't do. Jesus knows that Peter is going to come with his sins by faith back to him. Oh, my friends with his sins by faith to Jesus. And when he does that, look, he says, strengthen your brothers. (laughs) He's going to be in leadership. He's going to be the one, the one who was, who crumbled is going to be the one who puts strength into his brothers. That's absolutely amazing. And you see the same thing at the end of John's gospel in John 21, when Jesus looks at Peter, the, the, the risen Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon or Peter, do you love me more than these? In other words, hey, do you remember what you said in Matthew 26? And Peter Peter says, you know I love you. See, his faith didn't fail. He came, what his faith did is his faith, he believed in Jesus enough to come with his failures to Jesus by faith. That's not a failure of faith. That's a triumph of faith. Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, 
feed my sheep. Oh, that's awesome. What a weird king Jesus is. Somebody who fails him, he puts the denier, somebody who denies him, he takes the denier. Think about it, friends. That just needs to blow you away. He takes the denier and makes the denier of him the protector of his sheep. He takes the denier and says, that person's going to feed the sheep. What kind of logic is that? The logic of Jesus Christ. The logic of the gospel. Because the genius of Jesus' design is this, my friends. When he comes into the world, here is how he will fulfill the promise of his name and save his people from their sins. He fulfills that promise by establishing a meritocracy among men in which he holds all the merit. All of it. A hundred percent. No one else has any merit except Jesus Christ. Remember how Peter's relationship with Jesus begins? Jesus finds him on the beach and says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Well, what skill is it that Jesus needs to impart to Peter? What knowledge is it that Jesus needs to impart to Peter in order to transform the big fisherman into a fisher of men? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's the sweet taste of his mercy in restoring him undeservedly and gently out of his own failures. That's what Peter needs. Peter will be a fisher of men when he knows, when he tastes, just not theoretically like you would in a laboratory, but experientially in his own life, the way you would taste it at a banquet, right? The sweetness of mercy, the sweetness of forgiveness in full view of real, cataclysmically massive sin. And when in the face of the undeniable presence of that undeniably massive sin, the undeniable reality of sweet restoration is given to you, then that man will be a fisher of men. Because that is what everybody wants. Peter will be ideally suited to guard and fend, uh, feed and tend the sheep because he will know what it means to have been a wayward sheep. He will know undeniably, it won't be theoretical for him, he will know how weak he is. He will know what it means to wander. He will know what it means then to be found. And those memories will not die for him. And those are the very memories that the sheep are going to need. That's what we need. Oh, friends, Peter's... Restoration reminds us that it's the radically restored who are Jesus' instruments of choice. And in fact, they're the only material he uses to build his church. Because somebody who's been radically restored knows that their life is ruled not by their merit, but by the mercy and merit of Jesus Christ. Jesus restores Peter just like he restores every 
one of his people, not to elevate the person, not to elevate Peter, or if you're a Christian, not to elevate you, but Jesus restores you, he restores me, he restores any who are willing to come to him in repentance and faith, not to elevate you, but to elevate himself. To elevate himself. To display the kind of king he is and his all-sufficiency. He is the only hero in every Christian's biography. The only one. You know what Peter's story means, friends, that when Jesus went to the cross, he not only possesses all the, because Jesus went to the cross, he not only possesses all the merit, but you know, he also has taken ownership of all the failures of his people. When Jesus died and gave himself as a substitute for his people on the cross, with his own blood, he paid for all the failures of his people. Do you ever think about that? All the failures of his people. And when he paid for those failures, my Christian brothers and sisters, when he paid for your failures, he acquired title to your failures. He gained ownership of your failures. Uncontestable, irreversible title to every single one of your failures if you're in Christ. And he's not giving them back to you. He acquired them for his purposes. You have been eternally divested of all ownership interest in your failures. Your debris field, he now owns. Your wreckage, he owns. And he has made your debris field, he has made the wreckage of your broken promises, his trophies. And so you and I are not free to use our failures to insulate ourselves. We're not free to use our failures for anything because they're not ours anymore. We're only free to talk about them, think about them, and to display them according to what Jesus wants done with them. And if Peter's example is any, if Peter's experience is any example, then here's what Jesus wants us to do with our failures, to admit them. To admit them in the same breath that we acknowledge the overpowering sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the answer, the only answer for them. We're not ashamed. We don't have to bury them. We don't cover them up. They become trophies of Jesus Christ that we point to and say, look at my Lord. Look at the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Friends, the fact that Jesus chooses Peter and people like him for his church means that he isn't building a monument to the merit, the ability, or the fidelity of men. He's building his church in a way that leaves no room for the spiritual pride of men. He's building his church as a single-story building. And the story is this. (laughs) His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we... We pray, just even just thinking about this theme of our failures and, and how we want to hold on to them. I'm just praying now that in each of our lives, you would 
free us from contesting your rightful ownership of those failures and that we would live increasingly as people who are defined by your triumph. And I want to pray for those who have come in today not not reconciled to God with the wrath of God remaining on them that, that you would make today the day of their salvation, that now would be the day, the acceptable time, now would be the, the day when you come to their aid and enable them to rest in full upon you through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name.